Hello and welcome to the fifth of this series of podcasts brought to you by AGRA, the Association of Genealogists and Researchers and Archives, the body which represents professional genealogists. I'm Nick Serple, and today I'll be chairing a discussion on how best to research ancestors in Liverpool. The city has been a settlement since Norman times, but it was in the early 18th century it began to develop into a major port and city, through which flowed goods and people. The exodus from Ireland, caused in the main by the potato famine, meant that by 1851 a quarter of the city's population was Irish-born, and they were joined over the years by a melting pot of other races. Many moved on, some to work in the Lancashire Cotton Belt, or further afield to places like the United States, but a significant number joined other immigrants in making Liverpool their home. On today's panel of agrogenealogists, we have three experts in this area, Grace Tabern, Sharon Grant, and Rachel Rick. Sharon, uh, to start with you, I think, Liverpool, as I say, has been defined by immigration, and this very much underlines the records that are available for researchers in the city. There's large populations of Irish, obviously, which we're going to come on to later. The Scots, particularly that corridor between Liverpool and Glasgow. There's a lot of North Welsh people for work. And there's also an early Jewish community. Because of the presence of the port and mariners, Liverpool has one of the oldest Chinese communities. And there's also a very old Somali community. So when you go around Liverpool and its suburbs... You will see evidence of this because there's Welsh churches, synagogues, Russian churches, and it's all connected with the sea and how people arrived in Liverpool and what they were doing as occupations. You need to factor that in when you are looking for people, particularly emigration internally within the uh, British Isles and also immigration from colonial parts of the empire, as it then was. It resulted in, in quite a mix of cultures and people within the city of Liverpool and its suburbs. You'll see the spread of these groups around the relatively small centre of Liverpool. It's so important, it really is, and you need to consider when you're researching families, you know, how they moved, what they did for a living how they came to Liverpool, whether it's a result of famine in Ireland or depression in the tinworks in Cornwall. It's such a metropolis that people are attracted to because of the work and because of the port. Well, Rachel, we have to remember that just because people came to Liverpool doesn't mean you're going to find them there year after year after year, do they? Because people did used to go backwards and forwards to where they came from. People came backwards and forwards for lots of different reasons. People came to Liverpool mainly for work. Obviously, the docks were a really huge employer, but also a lot of people who are based in Liverpool, whether they were Irish or English or indeed Scandinavian or African origin, were mariners. So they're simply not going to be on all of the censuses, particularly the men because they may be away at sea. People also moved and tried different jobs elsewhere and sometimes came back to Liverpool. And people moved for for family reasons. So we find people moving to have children, for example, women moving to have children, sometimes to somewhere not far away. But I have seen people going as far as Poland to have a child and then coming back to Liverpool. So there are lots of reasons why people might have moved internally or not be on all of the censuses. In addition, people were often missed off the census because they were so densely packed, particularly in the city centre, uh, that it was very easy to miss people. I suppose when people think of immigration to Liverpool, they immediately think of Ireland because so many people came. 
And one of the questions that a family historian sometimes says, but I can't find any passenger lists. I can't find any immigration records from Ireland into Liverpool. Grace, why was that? Yeah, I get asked that quite often. People come to me and say, I just can't find them. There's no passenger lists. And the reason is because from 1801, they were classed as British subjects. There was no need for them to be recorded coming into the UK. Now, it's different if they were emigrating to America or somewhere like that. They'll be on a passenger list or an internal immigration. But coming to the UK, they were British subjects, as were people coming from the colonies as well. So you won't find them, unfortunately, in passenger lists. Quite often, as Rachel and Sharon have said, Liverpool was just a a stopping off point for people, a very transient place. They may have stayed quite close to Liverpool, but just on the outskirts, moving out into the other areas because of the work that was there for them in the cotton industry, in the chemical industry. The Irish came and took on the jobs that nobody else wanted. suppose that factor, Sharon, together with the fact that people maybe came and went between censuses and things could mean that a lot of people came through Liverpool and were never recorded there at all. Especially the Irish. I mean, I've heard it within my own family. They came to Liverpool with the intention of going to America and they didn't always manage to get the fair together. I think also, as a stopping off point, I think we underestimate how much people travelled and how much people in Liverpool travelled. And we forget before the advent of the railways that there was a coastal shipping lines that, you know, people could use as passengers to get, you know, up and down the coast and even around the coast into Europe. And they came out of Liverpool. It's another reason why people might be missing from one census or two or they never came back. But it's worth having in the back of your mind that people did travel more than we think they did. Rachel, Sharon mentioned earlier on about the great melting pot of different people, different religions in Liverpool during this time. But because the Irish tended to be Catholic, Catholic records are going to be quite important for many researchers, aren't they? Yes, they are. Many of the records are in Liverpool are really well transcribed and load available through Ancestry and Find My Past. There are also very rich records not so easily available in places like Bootle that people often associate with Liverpool but aren't actually part of it. South Southwest Lancashire generally had a very high recusancy rate and some of the very big names, the very important people, the Stanleys, the Blundells, the Molyneux were Catholics throughout the Reformation. You find places like Little Crosby that was Catholic right throughout, Speak Hall as a Catholic place and even before emancipation there were chapels around in Walton. St Anthony's in Scotland Road was built just before the Catholic emancipation in the early 1820s. So you'll find it's not just Irish Catholics, but there were a lot of Catholics who were there before. For anyone who's investigating Catholic ancestors, I'd like to recommend Google Translate, because most of the records are in Latin, but you can actually get that on Google Translate, which is quite useful, because very often with the Catholic records, There are notes in the margins. So, for example, if a child or the mother was particularly ill, they were often baptised by the midwife at home and then went to church later. And you get all sorts of really interesting little notes. The other thing that is particularly useful for Catholic records is that sometimes the baptismal record will be later annotated with a record of, of the marriage which is so useful for confirming you've got the right person. And finally, don't underestimate the value of looking at godparents because godparents are recorded on the Catholic baptism records and they can give you all sorts of information about the family. Grace, obviously it was a port, ships coming and going backwards and forwards, carrying Mm. all sorts of things. 
people, goods, and one thing or another. Ships had mariners, and a lot of names can be got from records of, can they not, of um, ships and who served on them, who owned them, and all that sort of thing. Yes, and there is a wealth of information out there for mariners. The Liverpool crew lists have been transcribed, and they're actually available on Ancestry. And if you look in those, you can see where the mariners came from across the world. They'd hop on one ship and hop off somewhere else and move around. You can follow them through, finding where they ended up, where they came from. And sometimes they would sign their own names. And so if you find something else that's got their signature on, you can match up those signatures. And I've done that in the past, been able to identify that, yes, this is indeed the right person that I've found. So you've got the people, not just the crews, but you've got the masters, the owners, and you've got a lot of records of those are held at the Liverpool Maritime Museum. So they've got all the Lloyd registers they've got plans of the ships there they've got the certificates for the masters and the mate so they're all held there in the maritime museum which is fantastic and also but don't forget that mariners also include the boat people the people who worked on canals as well and there's a fantastic project that the Ormskirk Family History Society have done uh, cataloging all the boat people so I recently did research for someone and They were from down in Staffordshire, but they all ended up living and settling in Liverpool. But they were all boat people. I just wanted to mention the fact with mariners, they went on long journeys, places like Australia and all over the world. And if somebody's missing, you need a mariner is missing... Okay, they might be on board a ship, but you you also need to think about them jumping ship once they got to their destination. They were contracted to come back, but many of them, particularly in Australia, they saw it as a means of getting there to the opal fields and other attractions that were there. So... You know, that's another area to explore if you can't find somebody. Of course, Rachel, we shouldn't discount newspapers for information about ships because a lot of papers carried the comings and goings, didn't they, of ships coming in and that sort of thing? They would record the the name of the ship, the name of the owner, the name of the captain and details of, of the journey and the cargo. So there are all kinds of fascinating information to be gained from newspaper reports going quite a way back. Quite a lot of those available online at the moment as well. And the British Newspaper Archive has got really good records of those, yeah. Grace. And and also not forgetting that a lot of mariners had wills. You'll find quite a number of those in the Prerogative Court of Canterbury, which are available online. And also a lot of them for the Liverpool area, you'll find in the Lancashire Record Office as well. Because it was traditional to make a will sometimes before you went to sea, wasn't it? Because you didn't know if (laughs) you might come back. Yes, I've seen wills for people. They obviously had a standard form so people who were illiterate who were mariners would make their mark and witness that as grace says they very often made wills but particularly if they were in the navy uh, more than the merchant service sharon i suppose one of the problems people have is that people arrive and they go again and they don't get caught by any records at all because they've moved somewhere else now sometimes they will have gone abroad It would be worth, would it not, looking not just at immigration to the USA, but quite a lot would have gone to places like Australia, New Zealand, South Africa as well. Most seafaring places or ports, you know, that is the pull factor. And they're going all over the world. And many would have been in the uh, British Army. And, you know, many Irish men did join the British Army. I know from my own research into my family that men joined in Ireland, went on their travels 
And many of them came back and settled in Liverpool because there was other family there. It's quite common, really. I think that underlines the point Grace made earlier is that Ireland wasn't an independent country and people forget that. A lot of Irish men would have signed up to join the British Army while they were living in Ireland. And that would give you an Irish address as well, which is obviously and possibly next of kin on the attestation form, which would be quite useful, would it not? If you've got Irish or Scottish ancestry or even Welsh, you know, the census, it's not very helpful, is it, in terms of giving the county, which for Ireland is absolutely crucial because that's where you go for your next step. Whereas if you find a military record, it will give a birthplace and year of birth or age at the time of enlistment, which is absolutely so useful um, in tracing Irish ancestry. Grace, when you have a port, you have a lot of comings and goings and money flowing in and out, and that creates a lot of business. So if you think your ancestor was in business in Liverpool in either a big or a small way, what's the best way to approach that, do you think? There's lots of different ways. Uh, trade directories is a key one, especially for the smaller businesses. There's lots of trade directories. Some of them are online and lots in the Liverpool Record Office. The first job is have a look in the trade directories. Obviously, you'll find information in census records if they mention that the business owners... But as Liverpool grew up, the buildings were built by people who had businesses. A lot of them were linked to the slave trade as well. Shipbuilders, lots of the buildings were ship owners and things like that. So you've got records of the shipbuilders and the maritime trades. They're held in the Maritime Museum archive. You've got Grace's Guide, which is a free guide where you can look up Um, the history of a business and find information there. Liverpool had a wealth of entrepreneurs who flocked to Liverpool because there was so much money to be made there. It was growing so fast at the time, wasn't it? As Sharon mentioned, in in sort of 1700, there was, it was barely registered, did it, Liverpool? And by 1900, it was this huge, massive port, main port for America for many people. A lot of the emigration ships went from Liverpool rather than anywhere else, I think. You mentioned the slave trade, and we can't talk about Liverpool without talking about the slave trade because, A, it's in the news a lot at the moment, but more importantly for us and and people researching, it did generate a lot of records. What are we likely to find, Rachel, do you think, in Liverpool with regards to the slave trade? And people these days are saying, was my ancestor involved in it? Well, probably if they lived in Liverpool, they probably were in some way, weren't they? What you find is slavery, as you say, at the beginning of the 18th century from the 1700s, that's when the slave trade really took off in Liverpool and it did transform Liverpool. Uh, That's when, in the beginning of the 18th century, the parish church was built. But because before that, the parish church for Liverpool was either Walton or in West Derby. It wasn't actually in Liverpool. Uh, So although Liverpool had had its charter from 1207 and had a market and everything, it didn't even have its own parish church. But that's when it began to really, really explode. The first known grave of someone who was an enslaved person was in 1717. There was a man called Abel and it records his name and his owner, but no surname. There were some slaves in Liverpool, not so many, uh, but there are records in the newspapers of slaves being sold in Liverpool at adverts for sales of slaves. But nearly everybody in Liverpool was involved in the slave trade, even if they didn't realise it, uh, because anyone involved in shipping, in the cotton industry, working on the docks, All of these businesses and areas depended on the slave trade. So it was a very, very important part of Liverpool's economic explosion. I suppose, Sharon, if you wanted to get the names of people involved in the slave trade, you could do a lot worse than look at some of the street names that exist in Liverpool today. 
I think Penny Lane is the prime example, named after a prominent Liverpool merchant and slave owner. So it's quite a subject at the moment. There are just so many streets that are named after people that are involved in the slave trade. It would be quite difficult to do anything about it. And if you did wonder if your ancestor was actually a slave owner, there are some slave registers available online between 1813 and 1834 ancestry, where you can search by owner's name. So you know, you may find something if you suspect that your ancestor may have been a slave owner. And also, again, the Maritime Museum has details of all the Liverpool slaving vessels, including the names of the owners and the masters and what happened to the vessel itself. And they're searchable on microfilm. The cotton industry in Lancashire, so important as it was that in the beginning, nearly all that cotton came from the southern states of the USA probably picked by slaves and was shipped through Liverpool before the Manchester Ship Canal was built for certain. So it, it arrived that way as well. So there were records there too. Yes, and there was also the Leeds-Liverpool Canal, which predates the, the Manchester Ship Canal. So a lot of cotton went via the, uh, the Leeds-Liverpool Canal, as Grace has mentioned. That was started in 1760, so it wasn't completed till 1816, but it was a major form of transport because, of course, none of this these huge amounts of materials, whether it's coal or cotton or whatever, could travel by road because it simply wasn't possible. And the railways had not yet started. So the canals were very, very important for Liverpool and South Sefton. Rachel, going back to the beginning of our discussion, we talked about the various different people that were in Liverpool. We'd only touched briefly on the Jewish community in Liverpool. And I think um, there's some important records there, are there not? Liverpool um, is, has the oldest Jewish school outside London, and it was established in 1841. And it's been a really interesting school, and its motto was to make them English. It was built for the children of immigrants to Liverpool, because I say there was quite a big community there. There was a religious curriculum, but there was also a secular curriculum, and they had separate teachers and so it was one of the first schools to admit non-Jewish children because the children of the English master attended there in the 1850s and 1860s. So a really important school. But then as the, the Jewish community grew a lot during the 1890s and early parts of the 20th century because of all the pogroms. So you have a lot of people coming to Liverpool from Russia, Poland and Germany. So the school wasn't able to cater for all of them. So you will find Jewish children in schools right across Liverpool at that time. Grace, we talked earlier about there wasn't even a parish church in Liverpool at one time. And I think it will be good to remind people that of the era we're talking about, Liverpool, the concept of Merseyside didn't exist. And Liverpool was no. very firmly in Lancashire, as any proud Lancastrian will tell you. Absolutely. So people are going to have to be aware of small parishes, are they not, for this area? And looking perhaps in records that they might not have thought about. All the outlying areas were just fields and little cottages and... So it wasn't this mass metropolis that we think of as Liverpool. It was lots of little villages that made up what we think of today as Liverpool. But as obviously the docks expanded and it built out and out and, and expanded into this big area. Rachel? A lot of the areas that we think of now as being very industrial and dock-orientated, like Bootle. In the 1700s, Bootle was actually a bathing resort and people came from all over to Bootle Coffee House to take the air, which you wouldn't do now. <laughs> uh, the other thing is, though, 
because of the charter, Liverpool had MPs, which Manchester didn't until quite late on in, in electoral reform. So there are poll books that are available. And obviously, it's only a small minority of the population who are able to vote. But there are poll books available for Liverpool way before quite a few other areas. Karen, I suppose as people made money out of business and got better off, some of them would have moved away from the nastier parts of Liverpool and moved out. So it's worth people looking beyond the actual city or town itself. Uh, yeah, I think Rachel's already mentioned some of the older families that were based in Liverpool and around Liverpool, Speak Hall, West Derby, all those sort of areas. But that's that's matched with expansion of those areas during the 19th century. The bit I know is, is north of Liverpool, um, really around Waterloo and Crosby. Large housing developments went on in that part north of the city, but development went all around the city south, obviously not west, but to the east. So there was a massive expansion. And also it's interesting what Rachel was saying about Bootle being a sort of seaside resort. Many of those places northwards were seaside resorts. Waterloo was established as a seaside resort. The residents of Liverpool city centre would have taken full advantage of that. Rachel? People use the canal as a mode of transport up to those parts, Ormskirk and Orton and Bursco, McGull, etc. But the railways really transformed that area. So places like Ainsdale and Southport became commuter belt for Liverpool. So as stations were established there in the 1840s, people moved out there away from the what must have been a pretty noxious environment in Liverpool city centre and commuted into Liverpool from places like, I say, like Ainsdale, Birkdale, Southport and other places on different railway lines. It really did boost the expansion of Liverpool. Sharon. Important to mention the Wirral and Birkenhead and Wallasey. You know, people lived across the water, didn't they? There was a lot of industry there, but there was a massive increase. Rachel. As a counterpoint to that, interestingly, Bootle is very rarely included in Liverpool street directories and trade directories but the Wirral is included so very often you will find information about Wirral ancestors in the trade directories that you might not expect New Brighton and Wallasey and Birkenhead to be in those but they are. Grace we mustn't forget that the, the directories that were published during this time didn't include just businesses very often it included what they would call the sort of the the better class of resident and their houses. And and that would mean, wouldn't it, that people who thought their ancestor was in Liverpool at some particular time might well have bought a big house at Southport or somewhere like that and be listed there. People did move out and they would be listed as the esquires of the town. Um, All the great and the good were there at the start before the business people. It was important to make sure that everybody who was anybody was listed. So if you're looking for someone who was not necessarily trading as a business person, but was a person of note, then the trade directories are the place to look for them as well. Do you think there's any specific issues researching in Liverpool that people should be aware of that perhaps are peculiar to Liverpool? We talked about the immigration, haven't we? I suppose the movement of people is the biggest one, Rachel. It's just that a lot of people never stood still long enough to get recorded anywhere. It's really important to look on the census of where children were born. Very often that helps you to track your ancestors' path or route around the the country way back bizarrely my Irish family moved from Liverpool to Bristol and were recorded there in 1841 and then moved back to Liverpool and I only know that because one of their children is reported as being born in Bristol I was really lucky that they were there and I could see them I don't know why they were there and I'll never know I don't suppose 
So that's really important. One of the other issues, which I'm trying to uncover, looking at parish records, and I contacted the, the lovely archivist at Liverpool Metropolitan Cathedral about St Alexander's in Bootle, and he just emailed me back yesterday to say, when the Germans bombed our chippy, they also bombed St Alexander's in Bootle. So the Mayblitz did take out a lot of uh, church records because a lot of churches were destroyed um, at that time. St Luke's, yeah. of course, famously, and, and but many more churches. So there the will be some churches for which there are no records because they were destroyed during the Blitz. Yeah, that's a good point, Rachel. I've come across that too. Unfortunately, a great number were demolished and destroyed. Well, certainly people that I do research, I'm sure the same applies to you, that there is this expectation that records exist. I put a caveat on my website just saying they don't always. And of course, some people choose not to be recorded. As we mentioned earlier, there was as much suspicion of bureaucracy then, probably more so than there is now. That would have been an issue, Sharon, I think, with a lot of it. Another thing to think about, you know, people avoided being in the records, but sometimes they are in the records, but they're under a different name. People change their names. It still surprises me how often many of the brick walls I deal with is because somebody's chosen to change the family name. And it can be very difficult unless you've got some sort of clue. In one instance, the previous surname was given to one of the children as a middle name. It happens all over the country, but I do think within Liverpool or in cities generally, there are people that want to avoid being found, whether they're running away from the law or they're trying to avoid being charged for the maintenance of a child. That sort of thing is going on all the time. Of course, some people are in records they perhaps might not have wanted to appear in, mightn't they, in terms of court records and things, which we haven't delved into because they'll be the same across the country, but never turn down a good court case is always my uh, thinking. Rachel, you were going to say? Just in terms of records and looking for people, and I know that Sharon's mentioned name changes, but spelling and accents are quite a clue. So, for example, I have myself, Caulfield ancestors, and their spelling is only correct in church records because they were illiterate, and eventually the spelling of the name changed completely to C-O-R-F-I-E-L-D. I also had um, a, someone with a bit of a brick wall about around a Jewish family whose name was anglicised to Walter, and I couldn't find the birth of any of the children, and I eventually had a bit of a brainwave, and I spelt it with an Eastern European accent and found the children recorded on the General Register Office as V-O-L-T-A, Volta. So sometimes you have to try and say the name with the original accent and see if that gives you any clues. I guess, Grace, that a combination of illiteracy and a not particularly well-learned clerk has caused us all sorts of problems over the years. And particularly in, in census records, the enumerator would just write whatever he heard. And um, Liverpool was full of all different dialects and, and accents. So you really do come across some very weird and wonderful things and you've got to try and picture the person saying it, they may have had a lisp, they may have had a speech impediment, and that's how it, the name is written. So you've got to really think outside the box and just think, how could this name have been said um, by someone with an accent, as Rachel said there with the Volta? And it can be the same with the place of birth where they say they were born. If the enumerator had no idea where that place was, they would just write anything down. So you find some really weird and wonderful names of places that people were born in that mean nothing <laughs> they don't relate to anything but if you can really 
think about it and think about what could that possibly be? You might just work it out. And of course, you can't always completely rely on the transcriptions that sites like Ancestry and Find My Past do, can you? Because you take one look at the census and think, it's nothing like that. I know it applies everywhere, but in Liverpool particularly, because there was such a large percentage of people from abroad. I think also those tips are really good because with the Irish community, it's the same names, isn't it? Over and over again. And it's very, very difficult to distinguish one family from another. And they're probably related to one another if they're in the same area anyway. But it can be quite difficult and you need to use every resource you can to identify the correct family. Of course, it doesn't help that so many Irish records don't exist anymore, does it? That mm. When people are looking, there's no census record before 1901, a lot of the parish records. But you're right about Irish surnames. They come in clusters. You know, if you go and look at court, there's loads and loads of people with the same name. Very often... They name their children with the same Christian name. So that always makes life interesting, I think. I think people sometimes assume that surnames remain steady. And really, they didn't steady up completely till the beginning of the 20th century, did they, when illiteracy fell away much more? How many times have you found brides that are illiterate in the 1880s, 1890s? Tips from anybody for someone who's coming to Liverpool, knowing someone of their ancestor lived there, but where should they start, do you think, Grace? The census, obviously, is a good place to start. As we've said, you may not find them in the census because they could have just stopped off in between census years, but that's a good place to start is the census records. Rachel, you would probably plump for certainly church records being important. The Lancashire Online Parish Clerk is, is really good, or that's Anglican records. A lot of the Catholic records are transcribed on Ancestry and Find My Past, so it's good to do some digging before that. And also the Lancashire BMD records are really useful because they give you some additional information to uh, what's available on the General Register Office if that parish has been transcribed. There are much better records for Manchester at the moment on there than there are for Liverpool, but there are still a lot. Any thoughts, Sharon, for the budding researcher who's just starting off and wondering where to go? Well, I'd agree with what Grace and Rachel have said. I would also say that if you're stuck and can't find somebody, you need to investigate the whole family and all the siblings. And as Rachel has already demonstrated, if the eldest child is born in Ireland and you manage to track that down, you've then some sense of where the family originates from. I think these days it's called cluster genealogy. Um, I would describe it as network genealogy, where you're investigating the wider family and uh, neighbours. And that ends this agri-podcast on researching Liverpool ancestors. It remains for me to thank our panel, Grace Tabern, Sharon Grant and Rachel Rick. For more information about this and our other podcasts, go to our website at agra.org.uk, where you'll find more information and sources about all the things we've discussed today. You'll also find a directory of agrogenealogists, all of whom are assessed by AGRA's board and must work to our code of conduct. Good luck with your future research, and may your brick walls tumble.